This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one moment, and available lounge seats that unwind you the next, visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all-driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app and you're good to go. Head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at The Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out The Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sean Fennessy, and this is the Prestige TV Podcast, and I just wanted to get the gang together early in my tenure on this show and say, uh, yo, I am joined today and for the next 10 weeks of Succession Season 3 by Ringer Senior Staff Writer Joanna Robinson. Hello, Joanna. Hi, Sean. I think you pulled me out of my Icelandic silica treatment that I was supposed to be having as I rest (laughs) and recoup. Uh, Pull me on mic to do this podcast, but here I am. I'm terribly sorry to disturb your restful recovery, but we are here to talk about succession for the next 10 weeks. And to do so today, we're going to be talking about the last episode of season two. That episode is called This Is Not For Tears. It is directed by series staple Mark Millad and written by creator Jesse Armstrong. This episode aired, Joanna, almost exactly two years ago. It's been so long since we've had new succession. How are you feeling about, you know, what we're going to be doing on this show? And how are you feeling about the long absence of succession in our lives? I feel like we really need it. I feel like we've been missing it. And I think that this last year would have been much better if we had had the sort of schadenfreude of being able to watch the Roy family tear each other apart. Maybe as we were in lockdowns with perhaps our own families, it might have been nice to see a dysfunctional family on display. How about you? <sighs> yeah, I think you you make an interesting point about the um, locked down nature. This is a kind of a locked down episode. And I think that that's really when succession is at its best. I wouldn't say I felt trapped in my home with my wife and my young daughter. I've been thriving with my new family, (laughs) but um, I certainly understand the anxiety and the agitation that it can sometimes provide to be surrounded by the people with whom you are closest in the world. Uh, The Roy clan redefines closeness, I think. They have a, a bit of a perverted view of closeness in the American family, but I guess for you, now that the show is coming back, I assume you've done a rewatch as I have, maybe a maybe a re-re-rewatch. Um, what is it about this show that you connect to? What is it about it that you love? Yeah, I think what's interesting about Succession, um, among some of the larger themes of power and um, fear and love and, you know, all, all these small, small things, there is this really fun mix of highbrow, lowbrow. Um, where you can feel like you're getting your sort of classical entertainment with your shades of King Lear or whatever the case may be. Uh, but then there's also just the most uh, disgusting, innovative swearing happening at the same time. And so I feel like there's something, a little something for everyone uh, on display here. And I think that 
feeling like you're watching some sort of classical epic is really underscored, uh, no pun intended, by Nicholas Bertel's score, which I've gotten on the multiple rewatches. I've gotten more and more into the score and how it's used and when it's used. Um, I'm not usually a score-obsessed person when it comes to television, but there are certain composers like Ramin Javadi on Game of Thrones, um, et cetera, where you can really get into the different colors as the music highlights themes, themes that follow characters, themes that follow moments, themes that follow relationships, all of that sort of stuff. So the score is so interesting and unusual for the show. It's just one of many different ingredients, I feel like, that makes this such a special show. Obviously, in the in the two years since it last aired, it feels like it has accrued a bigger fandom, a bigger sense of importance. There was a lot of talk about this show kind of in the wake of the election of Donald Trump as being perhaps, maybe unfortunately, the right kind of show for the moment to kind of reveal how power operates and the kind of selfishness of a certain high class of person. But I would say that there's also something kind of... <sighs> I don't want to say relatable because it's not relatable, <laughs> but understandable about the dynamics inside of a family and even inside of a company and the way that people make decisions and the way that people hoard power and the way that they hurt each other and the way that they care for each other in oblique ways. And so you've got certainly Nicholas Patel score. You've got this incredible cast of actors. I would say one of the best casts ever assembled, not just one of the best casts, but some of the most well-cast actors in TV history. Such a rogues gallery of people who you've seen before, you don't necessarily have huge allegiance to in previous characters. We'd seen Jeremy Strong in Adam McKay movies. We'd seen Matthew McFadden in, you know, Pride and Prejudice, but never quite like these people. We've also got extraordinary direction as like a, a true sense of filmmaking that I think goes into this show, unlike some shows. You know, I heard you and Bill talking in the last episode about Succession about the way that Mark Millad tends to use, use crowds in, in the series and the way that this sort of like cluster of people and this energy that is constantly being created, it's like, you know, 900 ducks quacking at each other at all times on this show <laughs> in such entertaining ways. Um, yeah. And I think you're right too, that there is something Shakespearean or almost operatic about the stakes, about the idea that, you know, people have each other's livelihoods in their hands at every turn and ultimate power is really at the top of this conversation. It's interesting to me that you mentioned Trump because I don't know about you, but I like over the last administration, I got really tired at a certain point of talking about all of our culture through the lens of Trump. Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting things to say and notice. Obviously, I don't want to ostrich um, on anything, but I think that um, it'll be really interesting to see this season without that oppressive sort of lens over it. There are obviously Trumpian elements to Logan Roy, to the family, et cetera, um, which will be worth mentioning. But I know that Jesse Armstrong and his writers have a lot of other inspirations as well. So it'll be, I think it'll be really, really fun to spread that lens a little bit and, and look a little wider as we, as we go. Yeah. And we can also say like the show was conceived in a pre-Trump time and it was conceived with the expectation of a non-Trump time. There's that great uh, anecdote that opens the recent New Yorker profile of Jesse Armstrong, the creator of the show, in which uh, the cast meets for a table read and then they gather at Adam McKay's house to watch the returns of the 2016 election, fully expecting a Hillary Clinton win. And that, of course, did not happen. And so the show somewhat resets its trajectory, but you're right. Now we're going to get a chance to see it in through the light of a different administration or maybe not through that light at all. I think it's also a show that kind of transcends its kind of political background and is very much, uh, like you said, a much more classical story. So on this show in particular, 
what do you, what do you want to, what do you want to do here? What are the, some of the things that we're going to do? We've never podcasted together. You know, we don't know each other terribly well. And yet succession is a bonding agent, I feel, in our culture. So what, what are we going to do? Get to know each other really well. Uh, <laughs> get to know the depths, like how, how much uh, tragedy and how much meanness we can enjoy. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm looking forward to getting to know you through the lens of succession. What a fun way to know someone. This um, sounds like a dangerous game, honestly. <laughs> But I mean, I'm a longtime fan of your work, so it's not like you're a complete stranger to me. But I'm excited for this opportunity. This isn't a quick take reaction podcast, which is what I'm often doing, either quick takes or recording something before an episode has aired. So I'm anticipating conversation. This is something we're recording a little bit after, which means we will be able to observe what the conversation is. I'm sure some of our colleagues at other outlets will be writing really, really interesting articles about things that we can sort of read and read from, et cetera. So I think we wanted to just get a little, a few layers deeper into the conversation and bring that perspective to a show that really deserves it. I think it deserves that long meditation and it deserves to be talked about for the entire week between episodes. Not every show consistent has that much gas, but I think succession does. How about you, Sean? What do you want? I I think that's really well put. That's exactly, I mean, that is the sort of thing that I like to do. I like a slightly more meditative. I'm not a a hot take artist or a quick take person. That being said, also a huge fan of yours, been wanting to work with you for a number of years. So I'm so glad that that's finally happening here at the ringer. I do think that you have been incredibly deft over the years at moving very quickly and responding to things that have just happened. And I've always marveled at that when you were at VF and on the other shows that you've hosted over the years, your ability to very quickly respond. I probably, I don't really have that, that arrow in my quiver. I don't have the, the speed ability, but hopefully we'll be able to get into something a little bit deeper about this show. On the one hand, I think if you want to just enjoy this show for these series of dick jokes and, you know, you farted in your own shit jokes that this show is best known for. Bravo. That's great. Fantastic. I'm happy for you. We'll probably be celebrating most of those lines here on this show as well. It's a great part of the show. Yes, true. It is. It is the, the, the vulgarity, the, the, the epic acrobatic vulgarity of this show is one of its best traits. However, it's also clearly got a lot on its mind. You know, it's a very gifted writing staff working on the show. They're building this kind of, you know, wide-ranging snapshot of the slow disillusion of uh, American power. Like, that is very much what's what's on display here. And I think on the one hand, we'll talk a little bit about, like, who is rising and who's falling throughout the story. We'll talk a little bit about what the writers are after as they try to continue to expand the scope of the Roy clan and where the all the various people that we've come to fall in love with are going. Probably tangle a little bit with our, like complicated feelings about being so in love with such horrible people. I think that's such an interesting hallmark of so many great HBO shows over the years. They've had such a gift for putting some of the worst people in our society on screen and making us become infatuated with them. What is it about the Roys in particular that you think we've grown to love? It's so interesting because doing this rewatch and then I did do a re rewatch um, <laughs> <laughs> is um, I need to be ready, Sean, for whatever you threw at me. Um, but uh, I think I had remembered season two, Kendall, someone that we all, all, I think most of us latched on to so strongly because Jeremy Strong is so incredible in the role. Um, I remembered him as just being this like quite sad, broken boy the whole season and then the ending being this big turn. But if you rewatch that season, um, he's a bastard 
in almost every episode to someone. <laughs> the Volter episode is one of the better examples, but you know, there's the the actress that he just sends away when he, you know, decides his dad doesn't approve of her. Because she um, says awesome too many times yeah, to her father. Just, just coldly sends her away. Um, or there's he berates um some of the staff in the back of the plane, you know, and like grabs their snacks and all this stuff. Like, you know, it's just like it's there the whole time. Um, there was just a lot of uh sad brooding that went with it. And so it's so interesting that Kendall as a character and Jeremy Strong as a performer gets us to just focus on that pain and and somehow gloss the other very troublesome stuff that's there. Because if you do the the Trump comparison, which is not always useful, but sometimes is useful and like that means we're really feeling for a Donald Trump Jr. figure. And that's a that's a question I have for myself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think there that's one of the tripwires of trying to project a real life analog onto any of these figures. Because, you know, you could say, oh, this is kind of like the Murdochs in this way, or this is kind of like, you know, this family of oligarchs. I, I think it's actually best for us in the context of this show to maybe talk about what some of the real life inspirations are, but to not confuse that with the intentions, the purpose, the characterization of the figures on this show. Cause honestly, like I think that saps the fun out of it a little bit. I think that's right. If you get too hung up on it, yeah, uh, that's exactly right. But I think it is useful sometimes to think about how we think about a family like this in the real world. The genius of art, right, is to get you to empathize with people who have nothing in common with you. And I certainly have very little in common with the Roys, I think. But then deep down, you know, several several layers deeper on a, on a reflection podcast a couple days later, I do because all families are broken in, in the same way, um, as, as I think you noted uh, here in our notes. Like, it's, it's just that family dysfunction, probably not deeply relatable for every single person, but definitely for people who come from tough homes, it's, it's relatable. And, and sibling rivalry may not be go to the extremes it goes to on this podcast, but that, it, that desire for attention from your parent, whether or not that means being the number one boy or the, or the CEO or whatever, or if it just means, you know, being top of the call list, I don't know. It, it, it is relatable and it is really interesting to see it in this context. And the context is so juicy and fun that you don't always know you're getting your vegetables with it, you know? Yeah. One of the other things that you cited is that this is also a story about the media and you and I, of course, have been working in the media for a very long time. And that may be one of the reasons why this show has become so phenomenological. You know, it it, <laughs> it has the kind of, this the sort of ruling class to celebrate it, to platform it, to spotlight it. In the grand scheme of TV ratings, Succession is not the most watched show. This is no Squid Game. This is a small domestic drama on HBO about rich people. And yet, it does, when it's airing, feel like the most important thing happening in the world. This is no squid game is is a phrase I'm going to hold on to for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? In some ways, it is like squid game, but that's a whole other podcast. Maybe we'll save that for later this season. You know, also to your point um, about learning more about me, you will also learn that I'm a broken boy and that I'm sure that there are all kinds of authoritarian parental figures that I uh, am in defiance of, that I'm working against. I, we all have our Logan Roy's in the world. So maybe we'll get a little bit of emotional splaying in that direction too. I love that. I'm also a broken boy. Um, <laughs> and I... I, I I think that 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 media question uh, is one that I've really been thinking about actually ever since White Lotus premiered. Because the moment I saw White Lotus really catching on on socials was people in the media talking about 
the journalist figure in White Lotus. And then I think it really kind of sparked from there. And I think a good way, a good tip, if you're a showrunner and you're listening, a good tip to get me the media talking about your show is put a put a journalist figure in there. And this is just rife with interesting media examinations from like ACN to Pierce Media to all these other figures who flit in and out in the sort of satellite way in the Roy family. It is fascinating. And the intersection of media, financial power, and politics. I think that's all in the stew here. I think it's fascinating. It's a rich text. We have a lot to talk about this season. I'm really excited. Also, we should say that throughout this season, you'll be hosting conversations with some of the key figures from the show. What can you tell us about that? I always love to talk about folks who made the show, about the show. Uh, helps me helps me better understand things. So we will have some folks who worked on the show, either behind the camera or in front of the camera, every episode, almost every episode, something like that. I think that it's a really good way to peel one back, peel another layer back, really. So we're going we're gonna to start with the man, the myth, the legend himself. Logan Roy and go go from there. So next week, after episode one, you'll have a conversation with the great Brian Cox, aka Logan Roy. Yes. Brian Cox, who, you know, many people recently told us uh, after we did the Redeparted podcast on the Rewatchables, should have been Frank Costello rather than Jack Nicholson. We quibbled with Jack Nicholson and many people said, should it have been Cox? I love that. that. I love it. Yes. What about Cox's General Striker? Are you in on that period of time in the X-Men films? Am I in? I'm all in, baby. (laughs) <laughs> love, love striker. <laughs> okay. Any other Cox uh, performances you want to shout Cox out? Twenty fifth hour. Twenty fifth hour. Manhunter, right? Isn't oh he? hell yeah! Yeah, the original Lecter. The original Lecter. So, uh, you know, he's been a very scary figure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're out, but but he's also so seductively charming. And that's what's so great about Logan Roy is that when he decides to turn on the charm. Like you see it and you feel it. And it wouldn't work if you were just a sort of scary bastard the whole time. But the fact that, you know, he can pour the sugar when he wants and he pours it on a dime. And sometimes in in the same breath as berating someone, he's decided that he needs them for something. My favorite version of this, I was trying to track this as I was rewatching, is the three different things he calls Siobhan. He calls her Siobhan, he calls her Shiv, but then when he calls her Pinky is when he like really wants something from her. And that's just always, uh, and he has, he, for all the all the kids, Romulus, Ken, you know, all this sort of stuff, Kenny, like all this sort of stuff like that. It's just, it's interesting to watch him almost code switch when the wind blows a different direction. I got to say, that's something that I probably would not have as nearly as much access to before having a child. And now that I have a child in the house, I can see myself trading nicknames and name shortening and all kinds of weirdness, depending on the cadence of the day. If the child is feeding well and sleeping well, a softness in my voice, a, the use of a nickname, a sweetheart, a sweetie. But if she's struggling and I'm not pleased, we get the full name. You the full and, na- like middle yeah. name too? Well, some sometimes, you wow. know, depending. You know, I have to drop into that deep authoritarian, you know, Irish Catholic the way that I was raised, you know, just Irish fear, Catholic vibe. Fe- fear the hand of God. <laughs> <laughs> and and you're right, there are all kinds of perceptive little moments like that throughout this family. So let's talk about where we were. Let's mm-hmm. let's talk about the episode proper that we mentioned at the top of the show. So this is the last episode, the season finale of season two. Uh, just quickly, season one or season two, what's your which do you prefer? Season two, I think, I, I like the slow churn of season one, but season two, when you, when I, 
the thing that I've discovered about myself in studying television over the last few years is that I really like TV where I can have a distinctive flavor for each episode. And I was talking to Bill a little bit about this. I think season two is much more successful at giving us a flavor for each episode. And part part of that has to do with almost every episode takes place in a different location. We're not just milling around New York for much of it. We're, we're globe trotting. So I, I think I really like the way that season two, I can point to the Dundee episode or to Turnhaven or Justies or whatever it is. And, and I really feel like I know exactly what happened in that episode. How about you? One or two? I prefer two for a very similar reason. It struck me when I was rewatching the show this time around that the point that you made is that the show effectively becomes a series of one-off bottle episodes. The one thing that the show lacks is no home base. There's no primary location mm-hmm. where you, like in Modern Family, you would be in the family home. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in, in The Sopranos, you would be uh, at the Bada Bing. There would be a place where you were like, oh, we are closely situated where we belong. This show, certainly they have the um, Waystar Royco offices. Certainly they, we have Logan Roy's uh, home in the city. You know, we have Shiv's apartment. We have, uh, you know, Kendall's apartment with Greg. There are a couple of places where we go to, but none of those places are really home. Home is wherever the clan is. And the Roy clan is so tightly knitted in these odd, our jesties and uh, in this episode in particular, stranded together by hook or crook on a yacht. (laughs) And that's one of the things that makes it so effective. I hadn't thought about that. I think the closest, if you had to pick one, I think the closest would be the office. And I think that's really telling uh, that in a story about a family, the the scent, the home base is the office, but, um, or the private jet. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that is really fascinating. And I think what's also true about these homes, you know, like in, in the Dundee episode in season two, Siobhan's gift to Logan is this book of all the homes that they've owned and he can't recognize most of them, uh, which might be telling about his sort of like declining mind, or it might be telling of the fact that they just don't matter that much to Highly him, relatable content. You know? How many books of the, all the homes you've owned previously do you have? Oh, like five, five or six volumes. Yeah, something like that. Volumes though, like big leather bound. Yeah, gilded edges. <laughs> Same, me as well. I have about seven or eight and I'm really proud of all the homes I've owned. North of 7,000 homes actually yeah, in my life. Yeah, yeah. wow, Feeling incredible good about stuff. It. Yeah. But I, I just, um, I think The powers that, of podcasting, Joanna. But I, I think that, um, I think what's also interesting is that a lot of these homes are new. Like Shiv and Tom have, move into a different place in season two. At the beginning of the show, Logan and Marsha had just moved into that spot. So even though that feels like the most homey spot because they have like a holiday or two there, it still isn't anything that has been long-term. And uh, I think that that really speaks to sort of the uh, the fractious nature of the family. That's a great point. The reupholstering, the refining, the covering over the badness is another aspect of this. Taking an old home, gutting it, and renovating it. In this episode, we learned that a, um, a yacht has been refinished by Marsha and that perhaps that is symbolic of what the Roy family is attempting to do to one another. They are attempting to paint over something from their past. There are these recurring themes, both visually and in the storytelling that we hear. So let's just talk specifically about where we were. If you did not do the rewatch or the re-rewatch as Joanna and I did, here's where we were. Waystar Royco under siege from all sides. In Washington, Gil Evis and an inquiry from Congress about the tourism practices and the disastrous episodes on the cruise many decades ago. We get the famous Greg testifying line, if it is to be said, so it be, so it is. Um, Sandy Furness and Stewie are still on the make trying to bear hug corporate takeover, waste our Royco. 
Shareholders are getting itchy. They want Logan to potentially step down as chairman and move on to a new generation of Waystar Royco. And so we find ourselves where? Where, do, where does the family huddle to solve their attendant issues? A 279-foot luxury yacht, as we all do, right? Natu- very relatable, yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think the only person I would I love I love that recap of of sort of how they're being accosted on all fronts. I might add the media to that uh, to that list, sort of public public uh, discourse. And and the other thing that is interesting is there's this shareholder meeting that they keep talking about that is some sort of deadline on the horizon for them. You know that they have to get this that or the other thing announced before the shareholder meeting. Says something to have on our minds. Also, something to have on our minds, maybe. And again, I mean, I should say off the top, I haven't said this, but like I've watched <laughs> most of the season. Um, we are not going to be spoiling what's coming. Sean has not watched them. I am very protective of my fledgling friendship and working relationship <laughs> with Sean, so I will not be spoiling him on what's coming for Succession, lest he cut me. <laughs> I <laughs> Joanna is learning very quickly that I do not like spoilers. You, I am like a listener in that if something is spoiled for me, I am bummed out. And you are, are, I think it'll be a fun dance that you know where, where this show is going in season three and I don't. And we'll be able to negotiate that in real time. But I'll just say this to put them to, you know, to put your listeners at ease. Folks who have followed me from Project to Project know that this is a dance that I've long done. So um, I promise I'm, I'm pretty good at, at keeping a lid on what I know and not, not putting a finger on the scale. Um but but we'll we'll leave it to Sean to speculate if any speculation is to have. But but also on this feed, uh, we've got another show dropping on Fridays, right? That is more forward looking. Yes. Uh, so Chris Ryan and Big Waz yeah. will be hosting a kind of pre-cap preview show for what to expect. So I think we'll do some speculating. I think I'll do some speculating. I'll like try to read your facial expressions when I pitch a concept about what might be coming down the pike. We'll see how well I get to know you by then if I can read those facial expressions expertly. Yes. (laughs) I am a poker player, Joanna, as you will Oh, no. Okay. All right. All right. Nevertheless, in this episode, because all of these forces are encroaching upon the Roys, they need to gather and make, I guess, a series of decisions. Among them, when Roman, Laird, and Carl return, seeking a kind of... um, a foreign investment to take the company private. They have to decide whether or not they want to pursue that investment. Connor is still uh, seeking White House placement. He's uh, running for job of president of the United States of America. And so that's hanging in the balance through some of this conversation. And then, of course, the the Roy siblings are all meeting up and there has to be some discussion about whether or not someone needs to be sacrificed for the sins of Waystar. <laughs> And we should say that the blood sacrifice, which is the phrase that Logan uses to close the episode before this, is just one of many, 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 many times that they use this heightened martial language to talk about killing someone or so-and-so is dead or something like that. That, again, feeds back into that feeling like you're watching King Lear or something like that. I also think about, like, Carl, Jerry to a lesser extent, but, like, you know, your Carls and your Franks, your Hugos are like these, like, Dukes sort of circling the court, whispering and conspiring and all sorts of stuff like that. I, I just like, I love them as, as a uh, flavor, flesh on the bone of, of, the, of the Roy uh, family tree. And it's what I love. You talked about casting earlier. What I love that Succession does is it often plucks these actors who are like New York, New York theater actors. So I mean, The Good Wife did really, really well. And I think because they film in New York, they have access to a lot of these people. Um, so that's something that I love that just really makes 
makes the f- the show feel like a really really strong brew. If that makes sense. Anyway, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. Been, I, it's a good point. It's been discussed like uh, Kieran Culkin, for example, and J. Smith Cameron have a long relationship because J. Smith Cameron is the partner of Kenneth Lonergan and and. One of Kieran Culkin's signature roles in his career was on stage and This Is Our Youth, which uh, Kenneth Lonergan, of course, wrote. So they've known each other for many years. But then also figures like Frank, played by Peter Friedman, longtime actor. You may have seen him in movies and television shows over the years. One of those, like, you're never in bad hands when he's on screen kind of a guy, but maybe isn't always necessarily given as much to do as he is as Frank in this show. So it's the big stuff. It's the Brian Coxes. You know, it's, it's, it's finding someone like Sarah Snook, who is so perfect for a part like this and nailing that. But it's also Justine Lube, also just brilliant. I'd never seen her before and she's magnificent on this show. So, you know, this episode features almost every single one of the key players, you know, down to the lowliest cousin, Greg. And they're all together in one confined space for almost the entirety of the episode. And there's something fantastic about that. There's something very Agatha Christie about the way that this episode is constructed, which I love, which is we know that that blood sacrifice you mentioned has to come at some point. And then so it's like, who has the murder weapon and when will someone die? That is basically where we're going. What a genius construction for a TV episode. I love it. And I love that you referenced in our notes, you referenced Death on the Nile, which is my favorite Agatha Christie film adaptation. The, uh, the 1970s adaptation or early 80s, whenever that was. I love an Agatha Christie murder mystery. And I think I watched this. Um, I wish I had the name of it right in front of me, but I watched this really interesting breakdown of the family meeting scene where they're each sort of offering up someone else as a sacrifice. And watching the choreography of that, the way the camera moves on that, and how they hand blame around the table and who sticks up for whom. Roman subtly sticking up for Jerry, like pivoting away for Jerry, you know, like that's my, that's my favorite thing. We, we can talk about the Jerry Roman relationship, you know, all day long as far as I'm concerned. But what I really love are these tiny moments that show Roman's protectiveness of Jerry when, when so infrequently does someone care for someone else on this show, you know? There's something so brilliant about Roman working so hard to protect Jerry while Shiv shivs her husband tom in yeah. real time it's it's kind of amazing it just shows the perfect dichotomy and you're right i mean it is like it's like a circular firing squad the way that everyone is just taking shots at each other back and forth back and forth let me just ask you a question before we go any further of course we're talking about this dinner sequence where logan has convened everyone to kind of talk about mm-hmm. who should go down who should be mm-hmm. who should take the fall who should take the blame for these heinous acts that have been committed in the 1990s if it were up to you who do you think was the right choice to take the fall? That's so tough because I think the answer is Logan yeah. is is what my heart says, but I also agree with Logan that no one can run this company like Logan. <laughs> so if you if you want to blood sacrifice Logan, if you want to put his head on a pike, that's fine. But I think that means putting all of Waystar Royco on uh you know, on the firing squad. And that's fine too with me personally. Like I actually think the ideal outcome of this whole series is the fall of the company and the kids are free from, you know, their quest for the throne because I don't think the throne is good for any of them. How about you? What do you think? Well, I think you're right that Logan is the person who should take the fall because he is the author of his own undoing. But also we know in our society that that person usually does not take the fall or does not take the blame necessarily. And so Kendall is clearly the savvy move. I can recall watching this for the first time about 20 minutes into the episode 
thinking, oh, wow, he's going to kill Kendall. And it's even more heartbreaking to, to have been right about that because of the way that that scene plays out, the kind of closing moments just before Kendall's big press conference. I don't really think anything else would have played. I actually don't understand some of the moments where they're like, it should be Jerry or Tom or someone like the idea of Tom going down for something like this. I guess that is the kind of corporate maneuvering that you might see where someone who isn't necessarily responsible for something takes the fall like that. But that would have been so, so unsatisfying as a viewer. Well, it wouldn't. So I love that it's Kendall. And I think I've, I'm going to give past self credit for also seeing it coming, but only in this episode because leading up to it the entire season, I thought we were headed towards a Tom fall and a Shiv being the executioner and this being the ultimate morality test for Shiv. How much does she want the throne? Does she want it so badly that she will kill, quote unquote, her husband who, yes, she obviously doesn't love him in the way that, you know, we we think about a loving marriage, but has been very loyal to her and is fundamentally very supportive of her and is on her team. And that would be the ultimate moral fall for her and and the ultimate way in which Logan has bent her to be like him. And so I I was dreading that because ultimately I do want what's best for these kids. I was dreading that for her. And so the fact that she makes this massive turn in this episode and comes out in defense of Tom ultimately. And I think that's a really key moment. I think Kendall sees it. This is a moment I think I missed the first time or maybe in the second time. But Kendall sees Shiv talking to Logan. And I think he knows that it's either him or Tom. And I think he sees Shiv talking to Logan. He's like, oh, it's me. You know what I mean? He has his headphones on and he's sitting there and I think he's just like, yeah, it's me. It's going to be me. Do you know? And I, I don't know. That's that uh, Jeremy Strong will have to let us know if that's if that's the case. I think it's almost Tom until it's Kendall. That, do you think that that's when his wheels start turning on his ultimate plan? So Jeremy Strong has said that the moment that Kendall's wheels start turning is when Logan tells him he's not a killer. So like just after that. He almost looks like his wheels are spinning while his headphones are still on, but it's when Logan's talking to him and he says, no real person involved and you're not a killer. You'll, you know, you can't do it because you're not a killer. And he's like, oh, I got to kill someone to to prove myself. And what was really interesting for me to notice on the re- rewatch uh, is that um, Greg tells him he has the papers at the end of season one. That's something I didn't know. He tells him at Shiv's wedding that he has some things. And right after that, is when Kendall keeps Greg close. He creeps, keeps him close the whole season. Yeah. So he just has it as a move in his apartment. pocket. Yeah. He's got it on, on his mind. It's not like a late second. Because I was reading, I was trying to figure out what the exact moment was. And a lot of people were speculating, oh, on the plane back, Greg told Kendall that he had the documents and that's what happened. I'm like, no, this was, there are roots on this plan that go back. That's such a wonderful moment in the show in the first season in that final episode where he encounters Greg and he goes looking for somebody who has drugs. I think he asks right. him if he has drugs and that's where Greg the motherfucking egg and he's like, yeah. I see you, Greg. I yeah. see you. I like it. And then, of course, that leads to the fateful meeting with the um, the waiter at the wedding who has just been yelled at by Logan Roy and then he goes off on the joyride with him and then that man dies and then that sets into motion basically all of the events of season two. But you're right. That is such a critical moment in the history of the show because of that moment with Greg and Kendall and the 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 
odd bond that is formed there, this bond that Tom has been trying to build and protect to have a kind of a bag man, you know, a body guy who yeah. can take care of him at any at any moment or also be his fall guy. And in fact, it's Kendall who has more effectively shepherded that relationship, built that relationship with his cousin. Such a great show. The, the writers of this show really know what they're doing. It's kind of amazing. But that's But that's also such a Logan move, mm. right? To sort of like fatten up someone <laughs> for later. Um, and it's it's an instinct that Tom completely lacks because as much as Tom, in all of his bullying of Greg, it's so obvious that Tom wants this connection with Greg, that that Greg being on his team really matters to him. But he keeps making just wrong moves. You know, like when Greg comes and is talking about his need for a place to live and Tom just makes fun of him for that. And then Kendall just quietly listens to him and then quietly gets him an apartment. You know what I mean? And it's just like, you know, it's all it's all for his own gain, ultimately, Kendall. But like those moments, yeah, it's a very Logan move. I think. It's funny, you know, Megan Schuster on The Ringer wrote a piece about Tom last week about his his kind of motivations and his his Minnesota nice or not so nice and this kind of persona of a person who comes from the middle of the country and tries to succeed just so they can kind of rub it in people's faces back home. And, you know, Tom is really motivated by this kind of vainglorious insecurity. You know, he's somebody who is not of this world and is an aspirant. And Kendall, while he is so emotionally affecting in the show, and Jeremy Strong is such a great performer, he's really pure evil. I mean, he is like, he is born of the evil. And as much as we feel for him, this is Logan Roy's second born, but first chosen son. Yeah. And he's got the bad vibes in him. You know what I mean? Like he really, that's some nefarious shit that you just described that he did where he, you know, he groomed Greg so that yeah. he could kill his father. That's, that is Shakespeare. Exactly. It's perfect. And I think I love, I love that exploration of Tom's Minnesota nice or not so nice. But what's interesting is that there are moments. That's why Tom is such a fascinating, slippery character because there are genuine moments of wounded puppy dog niceness in him. But then it's just flavored with this other thing that is that is toxic. And once again, you just want, I just want to get him away from the Roys. Like every, everything, like Logan is poison. <laughs> and everything that touches Logan is poison. And Logan himself was poisoned. You know what I mean? This is generational, right? But like Logan is poisoned. His children are broken dolls as I like to call them you know what I mean and it's like it's not like Tom is a great guy but ultimately I do want Tom away from all of this because well, he and he and Shiv are not going to make each other better that's not no. what they do no and uh and so I I want them all to scatter I mean I, I think that the one of the key lines and there are several key lines in this episode we'll probably talk about lines the dialogue of this show quite a bit for the next 10 weeks but I wonder if the set I'd be without you would be less than the set I get with you which Tom says to Shiv on the beach is chilling. I mean, that is authentically upsetting. And it speaks to this guy who is a little bit trapped in his dream. You know, he, he sought to rise up the corporate ranks and become a very important person and marry a very important and impressive woman like Shiv. And he got what he wanted and it's hell. He's just miserable. I wonder if the sad I'd be without you would be less than the sad I get from being with you. As much as we focus on Kendall as the sadness of season two, our empathy for him, even though, as you say, he's got that evil thread right through him, I think Tom is kind of the tragedy of of this show. If you think about 
I think about it like like a, a Gatsby figure, like and the way in which the Buchanans are careless of of other people and will just sort of break you and move on and not even think about it. And you know, and if he's made like Shiv his daisy and it's just all gonna end terribly for him. That's my concern. Wow. That's I, I didn't expect us to get into Fitzgerald, but you know what? We should do that. We should reach for the literary <laughs> as often as we can here because it's worthy of it. I think the it. show deserves it, but I, I always think of the Buchanan's when I think about careless people, mm. carelessness, and that's the Roys are constantly careless with everyone around uh, them, even their closest family members. Well, e- even right down to the episode title, this is not for tears. Is a, is a reference to a line from a John Berryman poem. It's not as if we are looking too deeply into the, these kinds of works. The writers have this stuff on their mind when they're putting, this stu- putting the episodes together. That's the thing is like, they're very highbrow. They, I mean, I've, I mentioned when I was talking to Bill about this, I mentioned that Turnhaven is my favorite episode. And one of the reasons in the same breath as they poke fun at people like the Pierces, this writing staff can operate at um, a level where they can put in jokes like Potemkin pillage and stuff like that. You know what I mean? And, and toss in literary reference after literary reference after literary reference. That's all in there, but then they'll make fun of it in making fun of Frank Shakespeare, Frank, as they call him, right. They'll make fun of Frank to sort of undermine their own uh, literary aspirations in the, in the show. I think it's a really interesting mix. Um, but yeah, I, I love, I love, those literary details that work their way in here. And once again, the way that they sit so comfortably next to the most disgusting things you've ever heard people say is, is the genius of the show. Yeah. You just reminded me of, um, she could be our Coriolanus from, uh, I guess that's from season two uh, as well, which Frank shares with, um, with Kendall and Logan is one of the great lines in the whole series where he explains, <laughs> explains it. A lot of mocking of Shakespeare. We won't be mocking Shakespeare here on this podcast. Well, we can mock it, but also celebrate it at the same time. And like, I think, isn't Logan's response to that, like, take your library card and fuck off or That's something, it. you know, something like that. It's just like, it's great stuff. So let's talk about some soft superlatives here. Mm. We know that this episode ends, of course, with Kendall being told that he is going to be the blood sacrifice this very sad and sullen moment. He hops on the private jet back with Greg. Greg reveals to him that he has some, he still has those secrets. He still has those documents. But just a few that he like rescued from the fire. From the fire, that's right. That he stuffed down his pants very quickly. (laughs) I wonder if they are enough. That's an interesting question heading into the third season to actually take Logan Roy down. It's a fascinating open question about Logan's fate heading into season three. That press conference, one of the more dramatic mic drop season finale moments I can recall. Where does that sit for you in the like the Game of Thrones pantheon of holy shit, I need season three now? It's huge. Pretty high up there, right? It's huge. Because like it being Kendall is maybe something we could have seen early in the episode, but Kendall killing, quote unquote, killing his father. And then the cherry on the top of that is Logan's small smile. Love that. Right? Love the little, the indecipherable smile, the Mona Lisa smile. And so you're just, you're just, dying to know I, I you know whether or not we know what Kendall's next move is you don't know what Logan's next move is like if he's proud a little bit of his son if his son has made him happy by being like him does that mean that he is willing to be killed I don't know or you know is he gonna fight back I don't know but I, I think it's um it's such an enigmatic beautiful moment that of course you want to know what's going to come next. So I think we have a pretty good handle on 
some of the themes of this episode. There's some sort of reverse filial piety going on here. There's sort of like killing the father to become the father aspect of the storytelling. There's certainly a lot of um, the degradation of the human relationship is just a huge part of this between everything between Tom and Shiv. And we see the ongoing love affair between Jerry and, uh, and Roman. Who won this episode? I feel like the answer is obvious, but surprise me. Oh, oh no. So I can't pick Kendall? Well, you can pick whoever you want. Okay, depending on your definition of one. I'm going to give it to Shiv for holding on to humanity a little while longer. Love that. That's great. Finding finding her heart again, briefly. Shiv looks more mortified by what Kendall's done than than Logan does, too, by the end. Well, it affects all of them, right? It doesn't just affect Logan. It absolutely does. Okay, best burn slash most creative expletive. This is uh, one of the most fun parts of the show. Who won the episode for you? I mean, it has to be. So one of us has to say Kendall. Okay, you know? great. I mean, I mean, Kendall Kendall had the ultimate heel turn. Your answer is more creative, but that was just, it, it's just, uh, watching it a third time was immensely enjoyable. It was like, I don't even know what I was cheering for, but I was like, yeah, get him, get him. And I don't get who, like two terrible people getting each other so they can run their terrible media business. No, those guys suck. But I was fired up. Yeah. Most creative expletive. We have some good contenders, but I'm curious what you're going to go with. Do you have one ready? For this I, I do. I do. Okay, I don't know it? if I feel great about saying it to you on our first recorded podcast together, but I'm going to say it. Logan says this to Connor, who frankly has a very tough, tough episode. We learned that Connor is $100 million in the red thanks to Willis Play. Willis Play is getting absolutely savaged by critics, so much so that she throws Connor's iPad into the ocean while they Incredible are on the moment. yacht. Incredible moment. When Connor goes hat in hand to his father... His father immediately starts mocking him and he says, I hear you just 500K on a fake Napoleon dick. <laughs> that's, that's not a direct insult. It's more a statement of fact, but there's something magical about that line. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurl the same word back at you, but it's, a, it's from earlier in the season, so I'm going to cheat. But I wrote this down on my rewatch notes because I love this line so much. When they go to the sort of the summer palace, they call it, and there's this horrible smell pervading the house. And Logan says, It smells like the cheesemonger died and left his dick in the brie. <laughs> I mean, whoever wrote that line, I hope they poured themselves a, an extra tall glass that night. They deserved it. Great, great line. There are some that are not quite crude, but that are also quite memorable. Uh, I think of Thank You for the Chicken quite a bit. Tom's defiant act in Logan's face, which clearly mystifies Logan. Sales Out, Nails Out is... <laughs> Sales Out, Nails Out, bro. Also is a great just, one. I mean... That makes me think that Kendall is smarter than I give him credit for because it's really quick and witty. Kendall just came up with it. Sails out, nails out. One of the other tragic moments of this episode, and I wonder, I'm curious about how what you think that this scene means, but Ken, he loves the broken you. That's what he loves. That's what Naomi Pierce says to Kendall yes. as she uh, deboards the yacht and, and leaves because Logan has asked her to leave. Does Kendall already know what's happening and what he's going to do at this point? Or is he honestly coming to grips with the difficulty of of everything right now? I think, you know, you asked earlier what the moment is. And Jeremy Strong has identified that, like, you're not a killer moment as the moment that he thinks Kendall made the decision. But it's it can never be just one moment, right? It's chipping away at something. And I think that moment with Naomi really does chip away at something for him. Kendall's love life is something that's really interesting because like the way that this show treats love and romance and relationships in general uh, is very unusual. Like we don't have any, you know, our, our 
top two couples that we're shipping, I think, are Jerry and Roman and Tom and Greg. You know what I mean? Like that's <laughs> those are our good vibes. <laughs> for, there is no love that is not perverse on this show. In some way, right? And so um like the Jerry and Roman have the purest love uh in a certain way is really interesting. But Kendall is especially like his anxious pursuit of Rava in season one. And then you've got Naomi and then briefly the actress and stuff like that. There is, you know, it all ties back to, of course, their horrible mother. But, like, there is this just real anxiety for Kendall about having a partner. And I think it's just that need for constant validation that they all have. Roman, to go back to your who's – I'm sorry. I know we're going to move on for this. But to go back to your, like, winner of the episode, I do want to say Roman has this real moment because he goes and he negotiates this deal when he's abroad and he comes back, the conquering hero, and they're all like, great job for you. And then he says, you know what? It's not good. It's not a good deal. And of all the characters in terms of movement, Roman not taking a win when he could have taken a win – but making the smarter business move, that feels like real movement on that character, which I, I think love is a good, a good moment. You know? I think that's a great call. I think it's funny to watch him appear to be the most mature of the three of them um, and make perhaps the savviest move. Now, he also was essentially under uh, gunpoint in the previous episode in a foreign land, and that may have motivated some of his decision-making as well. We'll never know with Roman. He's um, He is... Even though he feels like an open book, he is quite difficult to decipher at times, his true emotional motivation. We're going to talk about a lot of different kinds of things like this over the course of the season. We'll talk about moments of compassion. We'll talk about double crosses. There's going to be a lot to parse here. If you could put somebody in charge of Waystar Royco right now at the end of season two, would you leave Logan in place? Would you put somebody else there? I think it's... uh... Rockstar and the Mole Woman, the Jerry Roman dream team. Wow. I think together, they. I don't think one person can do it. So I think maybe together, since he has the, like, the vim, the piss and vinegar, yeah. and she has the actual sense, I think that combination is what I, what I, if I had to. What about you? I got a lot of empathy for Frank, you know? I've been working really closely along Bill Simmons for a long time, you know? And so the guy who's the guy next to the guy, sometimes you gotta... Are you the you gotta, Frank is what you're saying? Well, it could be. <laughs> you know, I get punched in the nose. I heard him taking some shots at me on this pod with you last week about how I'm not going to sell you. I'm here to sell you, Joanne. I'm here to sell you as I a I thought host. he was saying you were nice. That's what he was saying in his own Logan way, man. That's, he was. He was saying that. Um, in the same way that Frank knows how to read Logan better than anybody. I, I like hopefully, hopefully I'm not like Frank, honestly. If I'm like Frank, my life is a failure. But uh, I do think that Frank is a sort of logical person in a crisis that you would put in a position in the event that things don't go well, he get his head chopped off. But if they do go well, he feels like an able steward of the company. I guess maybe his attempted coup with Kendall puts him in the back seat in that position. But in terms of someone who really knows the business, who worked there for 30 years, who knows what Logan wants, who likes Shakespeare, <laughs> what's wrong with Frank? The library card is helpful. I don't know if he could like work a room, but we've seen Roman mm. work a room. Is is the, like you need to be able to work a room, but. Roman also, like, you know, let a rocket launch go horribly awry. So, you know, I have a lot of questions. Maybe the answer is nobody. <laughs> so it's going to be really hard to talk about where is Succession going this season yeah. with you because you know. You know where the show is going. You you have information, and, and information is power on this I'm podcast and in Succession. I'm going to beat you at this poker game. I'm going to beat you, <laughs> Sean. Some big questions that we're going to have. 
season two ended so magnificently and was so epic and felt like it could have been, frankly, the end of the show. If it really, if it had to be, if this was a little watched, you know, failing show on HBO that aired on Wednesday nights and no one was very interested in it, this would have been a majestic kind of boom explosion ending. But now we have to go on. We have to figure out what are the ramifications of Kendall's actions, which characters are going to be growing and evolving. And is this just going to be a series of, of death pits or are people actually going to change? Because most storytelling, most film storytelling, and that's what I focus on in the big picture, people have to change. They have to evolve in a two-hour time frame. And TV is not often like that. TV is actually the opposite. There is an emotional inertia that is necessary to keep the show moving. So what do you think? I think it depends on what kind of show you're talking about, obviously. I mean, you know that. But like, you're, you're right. that it, like A family sitcom, for instance, is very invested in nary a single movement on behalf of the characters. Like they have to stay exactly in their lanes, in their archetypes for all of that to work. But I think that in a, in a really good show, you should have these characters moving and changing and evolving. And that is one thing that I worry about, you know, because like we're so high in succession right now, as we should be, it's a great show. One danger that I see is if the kids are endlessly cycling, endlessly, falling into traps of their own making or falling for their dad's bullshit or whatever it is, are we eventually going to get some fatigue from that if there's no movement on that? Like Logan is sick and then he rebounds or this happens and the other thing happens. So like what kind of movement do we want to see? As much as I like enjoy reveling in in however it is that Naomi puts it, like watching you people fall apart is the most enjoyable thing, you know, whatever. (laughs) Like as much as I revel in that, if I am to be emotionally invested in characters, which is something that I want from a show, I need to see something happening for their movement. I don't have I don't have time, and neither do you, to really get to the bottom of this question I'm going to ask you. But I want it to be a <laughs> point of conversation for us through the rest of the season. Here's the question. Can people ever really change? Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. That's a great question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to talk to my therapist about that. <laughs> Like, especially as it pertains to family dynamics, I think that's a great question. I feel like it is the underlying theme of this series. It is the big question is, can Logan ever not be Logan, which is to say the friendly shark? Can Kendall ever not be Kendall, which is to say the wounded boy with with a mean streak? Can Roman ever be anything other than a showboat? with uh, a soiled underwear? You know what I mean? All these characters have such defined identities in our hearts and our minds, would it hurt us if they did change? If Shiv became a good person, would that be good for the show? Probably not. I mean, I don't want Shiv, I'm not saying they all need to become saints and, then, <laughs> and live happily ever after and go drink coffee at Central Perk or whatever. But what I'm saying is like, I think that for me, a satisfying conclusion to the show, and I don't know how long it plans to run. I don't know if you, as Jesse Armstrong said, I, think I don't know. He, I think he doesn't want to do it forever. Like, he doesn't want to wear it as welcome. So I would guess that this would be something like a five-season show. Five yeah. is the way to go. Yeah, I would have five. the same thought. That, for me, ultimately, the goal... Let's leave Logan out of it because the point is, like, Logan is going to die. That's the thing that's hanging over all of this. He keeps having all of these close calls. Like, that's going to happen. So the goal is for the kids to be able to find a way forward together so they're not tearing each other apart after this prize that none of them really should want, you know? 
I'm that's what I'm constantly rooting for. That's why I said to Bill is like I'm whenever all the kids get in the room together, I'm like, just figure it out this time. Just figure it out and don't let this all fall apart, you know, as you're talking. So I don't know. That's that's sort of the movement I want to see is like, you guys have a shared enemy. You keep forgetting it. And you keep mistaking your enemy for your friend. But it's that friendly shark, you know. We're gonna be figuring it out all season long here on Let's the Prestige it. TV podcast. Joanna. I think this was a pretty successful first pod, pod for us. How are you feeling? I think uh, we are ready to run Waystar Roy Clay. <laughs> I, I think we can do it. You and me. That sounds that sounds a little <laughs> bit bold. We couldn't do it without our producer, Steve Allman, who worked on this episode and will be working with us on this show every week. Thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you for subscribing to this show. Can't wait to get into Succession Season 3 with all of you. See you next week on Wednesday. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.